Welcome to the Creducation Podcast, your source of national commercial real estate insights, tips, tactics, and stories. Broadcasting from Idaho's fabled Treasure Valley, your hosts, Dr. Dre Campbell and licensed attorney, Taylor Tibbetts, take you on a deep dive into all things CRE. Came out of a Payne Weber office across the hall. I saw Coldwell Banker, thought the place was a bank, uh, went in, uh, dropped my resume off. They called me later that day, uh, set up an interview for the following day. I went to the library to look up this bank, see it's a real estate company. Almost don't go on the interview, but they, they were the only ones hiring college kids for the summer. So I took the job. Our final podcast guest at the CREI Summit was Bob Knackle on this episode. Bob joins us to talk about his rise in commercial real estate, where he started, how he got into the business, and what he's learned along the way. We're thankful that such a busy guy like Bob would make time to be a part of this podcast with a couple of Idaho boys and myself and Dre. We're excited for you to get to know him and have a listen to this episode. All right. Well, hey, everybody. This is uh, Dre Campbell and Taylor Tibbetts, and we are here today with the true, authentic Bob Knackle. Hi, everybody. Hey, welcome, Bob. From New York. Thanks for having me, guys. Yeah, Bob has had a prolific career in the commercial real estate sector, and we are here at the CREI conference, and we agreed to get him sneaking, snuck away over here to get him up in our room, and we're going to record another podcast to talk about just the life of a CRE agent in the Northeast. Awesome. Well, happy to talk about it. So um, we had the privilege of getting to see your career laid out on a, like a baseball card, right? Which was a really clever idea. And um, when I was two years old, your career was starting in 1984. So kind of talk us through about how you started in commercial real estate and what that was like and why you went into it. Maybe. Sure. Yeah. I, you know, my intention was not to get into commercial real estate. Uh, I'll take you back to my freshman year, 1981, at the Wharton School. Uh, I, like every other Wharton kid at the time, wanted to be a, an investment banker. Yeah. Uh, right. So I uh, went to um, my spring break fre- uh, between freshman and sophomore year, or freshman year, my spring break, I went around northern New Jersey dropping my resume off at every commercial bank and investment bank I saw trying to get a job that would look good on the resume. Yeah. Um, came out of a Payne Weber office across the hall. I saw Coldwell Banker, thought the place was a bank, uh, went in, <laughs> uh, dropped my resume off. They called me later that day, uh, set up an interview for the following day. I went to the library to look up this bank, see it's a real estate company, almost don't go on the interview, but <laughs> they, they were the only ones hiring college kids for the summer. So I took the job. I was doing market research with them, driving around Morris County, uh, writing down information on every commercial building I saw. Mm-hmm. And uh, I just really loved it right from the start. It was really uh, a cool experience. They, they had a great office, a bunch of young, hardworking people. It seemed like they were really having a good time. They were doing well financially. Uh, I really liked the, the business and the buildings and uh, went back my next summer to run that summer internship program. Mm. And then my third summer, I actually got my New Jersey real estate license and uh, was an assistant to an industrial broker. So I was showing industrial space uh, to tenants and uh, just had an absolutely fantastic time. Really loved it. So I started with CB when I got out of school in 84 in Manhattan. And, uh, you know, the rest, as they say, is history. Yeah. So you, I think of canvassing, right? That's an interesting time to canvas. Right now, people can sit from their computer 
and just scroll and look at buildings and click on the ownership and then look up the number. You actually had to go and drive around. Drove around with the big Hagstrom map, it was called, and had to make sure I went down every street to find the properties. And, you know, it would have been a lot easier had I overlaid a zoning map mm -hmm. on this so I could see yeah. where commercial buildings could exist. But literally the, the job description was drive down every single block, mark it off, make sure you saw every commercial property that existed, whether it was retail, office, industrial. Um, we didn't do apartment buildings at that time. It was just commercial properties. But, uh, you know, we sat there with sheets of paper, writing down information on, the, you know, how big the building was, who the tenants were, that kind of thing. So it was a really interesting learning experience. Yeah, it sounds like a good way to kind of dig your teeth in and then also develop good habits. Mm-hmm. Yep, so you, you then you accumulate all these maps. Correct. And did you write directly on the maps? No, I just used the map to make sure I was hitting every okay. every block. The the job was to write down information on one one property on one sheet of paper. There was mm -hmm. things to fill out, um, you know. And uh, so once uh, once I went down a, a street, I crossed that street off and just went on to the next one. So uh, it was really it was the CB called it the data bank back in those days. Mm -hmm. uh, and the college kids were out in the field uh, looking together. at everything, trying to get that database as accurate as possible. The, the amount and quality of publicly available information back in those days was not great. So this was a competitive advantage that, uh, that CB had. Oh, absolutely. So it's, uh, you know, in talking with you as well as, or hearing from you in this conference as well as seeing your social media content, we know there's a map room that you've now developed at an undisclosed location. <laughs> um, I'm a title insurance guy. And so, you know, plat maps and subdivision maps, I love that. Um, so I think it's a very cool concept. When did you come up with the idea to develop this room? When did you start working on it? Yeah, it, it's something that came out of uh, the pandemic, actually. You know, a big part of my practice in New York is land sales and development okay. sites. And clearly in New York, there, there are not pastures of open land. So, um, you know, especially in Manhattan, you, you have to knock down older buildings generally. There are a few parking lots, but uh, generally you have to knock down older buildings to create land to build new buildings. Right. Um, and part of that practice is doing valuation work to tell owners what their property is worth. Um, and understanding what the pipeline of supply is, is right. an important metric when trying to figure out what something's worth. So Absolutely. Um, I, for years, I, I wanted to go out and actually do a count myself because there's pretty decent information about the condo pipeline, although each report from the different residential companies is very, very different. Okay. Uh, but there's virtually nothing on the supply of rental apartments, hotel rooms, office space. Um, so, uh, I thought it was a perfect opportunity during the pandemic to get out there. Nobody was in town. Everything was closed. Uh, went out, got brought little sections of the map into the field. And originally I started highlighting them just so I didn't have to write so much stuff right. down. Right. Uh, so I'd see it system. building under construction, you know, color it in, in green, anything that looked like a, a clear development opportunity where the existing building was built to less than 25% of its maximum buildable footage. Um, I highlighted in orange and then potential assemblage opportunities were in yellow. And I brought these things back to the office and you know, started doing research on them. 
and one thing led to the other. I started taping pieces of the map together, yeah, and before you know bigger it, and bigger. map was 24 feet long <laughs> and 10 feet wide, and and really has tremendous a tremendous level of detail on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that has has helped us develop a um, a supply pipeline that's very very accurate, um, and we have it broken down each to each of the component parts. And uh, it's really, it's been a kind of a client magnet. Every developer oh, yeah. wants to come in, take a look at it, and, uh, you know, see what's going kind on in town. Compare nodes, see. Yeah. Do they have to become a client before you'll show it to them? Not at all. Do you have to sign an NDA? <laughs> I joke around that people have to sign an NDA. They really don't have to sign an NDA. Yeah. But uh, don't allow pictures. No, nobody yeah, yeah. can take photographs of the map. Uh, but uh, just from far away, so you can't tell the detail. Yep. But uh, yeah, no, no NDAs required. So that, that sounds like one competitive advantage you've had. Another competitive advantage, I listened to someone um, say that you had, uh, Mr. Moran said that you had, were sending out newsletters before I think a lot of people did. And so kind of talk about how you utilized your data to send out and, and to market to the general masses before there was mass emails and mass marketing. What did you do to kind of target your customers? Yeah, we, we did a ton of hard mail. I mean, back in the, in the days when, you know, before email really became uh, a thing, we were sending out about 3 million pieces of mail a year. Um, and we just thought that, you know, today, uh, my buddy Ed Winslow has coined the phrase proof stacking. And what proof stacking is, is continually demonstrating to your client base or your potential client base that you have capability, uh, you've done transactions, you you have expertise at something. Yep. And the way you do that, you constantly do it. So we send out mailings every single month. Mm-hmm. Uh, every agent in our, our company would send out a piece of hard mail. Uh, it was very, very effective. We started, uh, the first newsletter we did was at the end of 1988, early 89. Uh, and did them every quarter uh, for 26 years. And it started as just a little four-pager and got to the point where we were doing 32 pages with color. We were selling ads in it. And uh, it really was effective. People still remember. They they refer to it as the green and white mail. We haven't gotten the green and white (laughs) mail in a while. But, you know, and we always thought that when you, you, you know, as a broker... You want to have market presence and you want to be top of mind with somebody. If you think about it, um, in, in Manhattan, for example, the average turnover rate of properties is 2.6% of the total okay. stock is the average turnover, which means when somebody buys the property there, they own it for an average of 40 years before they sell it. So people are not always transacting. So yeah. most of the time you're talking to them or, um, or engaging with them in some way, they don't have anything to do. Um, so I think the effectiveness of the hard mail was a constant reminder. Even if they, they picked it up, looked at it and said, oh, uh, Bob Knackle, Massey Knackle, uh, and threw it in the garbage. To me, that was success, right? right? Because you're planting the seed. Oh, if they're just throwing it in the garbage, they probably are not interested in doing anything, not selling, not refinancing, not doing anything with their property. But yet every month they're looking at it, throwing it out, looking at it, and then something happens that that incentivizes them or motivates them to sell. Um, it's death, divorce, taxes, partnership right. disputes, whatever the case might be. And they say, oh, I have to sell. Oh, let me call that guy who's sending me the mail all the time. Name recognition. And, and that, you know, being top of mind is very important. And I think the hard mail uh, helped doing that. And then when email became so prevalent, 
clearly we shifted much more towards towards email uh, but now we're reverting back to doing more hard mail again I've heard because, that that because, it's kind of a unique approach and people yeah, I just, to him a little bit. I just think uh, that um, that emails are becoming uh, such that folks are getting inundated yep. hundreds of emails and sometimes the uh, the desire is just to clean out your box. So you're hitting delete, and delete, not even delete. Looking at them, right? You don't even get yeah. that name association. And maybe inadvertently deleting something you shouldn't yeah. delete. So um, we found that hard mail is effective, and we're getting back to doing uh, more hard mail than we've done in a while. And so you've also you've spent time at one of the big boxes um, brokers. That's where you kind of cut your teeth, and then you went and had your own uh, brokerage for multiple years, right? And now you're back at one of the large players at JLL. Mm -hmm. So you've been at two of the largest players, I think, in the world. What has it been like to transition from working for a brokerage, a large national firm, and then working for yourself, and then working for a large national again? Yeah, well, the, the early days, the four years spent at, at CB at the beginning of our careers was really such a learning experience that um, we really didn't have uh, either the foresight or the the the... the uh, knowledge to take advantage of all the things that a big company affords you. And I, I say to people, because people often ask, what's the difference between, you know, having your own shop and being at a big shop? And I say, look, there are, there are pros and cons to everything. Pros and cons to small companies, medium-sized companies, big companies. Um, and you have to take advantage of the, the great things that your environment provides you with and try to stay out of the way of the stuff that may be not so great. Um, and so, uh, I, you know, I don't think there is a, um, a, a situation or a circumstance that's, um, that's right or wrong or better or worse. I think you have to take advantage of what your environment provides you with and just try to do the best job you can. So, uh, you know, clearly having your own shop uh, was, again, good and bad and everything. It was great that you kind of called the shots, made the rules, uh, but yet you were responsible for everything. Yep. And, uh, you know, the market has been, is, and always will be cyclical. And when times are tough, you know, owning a brokerage business is not fun. Right. So uh, it's, it's, like I said, there's good and bad in, in every circumstance. Yeah, absolutely. Bringing up cycles. Um, Maybe what are some either words of encouragement or perspective that you would have on the, the current real estate situation kind of compared to what you've seen in the past as the market cycled? Yeah, well, I, I think the, the thing that folks need to keep in mind is that it is a cyclical market, as I said, and it's going to come back and get better. Uh, I think every downturn is a little bit different. Uh, this one, I think, is very different from what we've had in the past, and I'm still trying to figure out whether... We're still in a correction in New York anyway that, that started in October of 2015 and is still going. Wow. It just had a, a little break. Uh, second half of 21 and first half of mm -hmm. 22 is actually pretty good. Yeah. Uh, but then the interest rate increases have, have reversed course. So I don't know whether that was just a little break in this long correction we've had or we're in a second correction now. Um, probably leaning more towards the fact we're in a second correction. Um, but in the, the other three big ones that I've been in, which were the SNL crisis in the early 90s, uh, the recession in the early 2000s, and then the GFC, um, during those corrections, every product type was moving in the same direction. They were all moving down just to varying degrees. Uh, today, uh, the two biggest 
differences are that uh, lender behavior is very different and product sectors are moving in in different ways. Um, So let's look at lenders. Um, In the SNL crisis, lenders went through a two or three year foreclosure process, took title, sold REO, hired brokers to do that. Um, During the early 2000s, lenders didn't want to go through that two or three year foreclosure process. They sold a lot of paper, hired brokers to do that. Mm -hmm. They effectively did the same thing during the GFC. Uh, This time around, uh, they're not engaging with brokers as much. Uh, I think that um, SVB going down and Signature Bank going down um, put lenders in a position where they don't want their book to be out in the public right. domain. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so they've been, the transactions I've seen, many of them are the lender just going to depositors of theirs, clients of theirs saying, hey, would you like to do this deal? We'll wow. sell this one at a discount. together internally. Yeah, and just like below the radar screen. Or being creative with restructuring or yeah, offering some kind of deal. So, you know, lender behavior is very different. And then on the product side in, in New York, and my frame of reference, unfortunately, only New York, because I, I just focus on the city. Um, but, you know, the retail sector is a bright spot today. Mm. But the retail sector in New York has been hammered for six years. Um, but mm-hmm. it rents have stopped going down. Leasing volume is picking up. We're getting investor calls for retail again. So that sector, I think, is actually on the upswing already. Um, multifamily has a tremendous political headwinds, uh, but demand is very broad and robust. Yep. Um, and our cap rates, which for my entire career, cap rates on New York multi were always 150, 200 basis points lower than around the country. Yeah. Um, but today they're higher than around the country. Wow. And so that's drawing a lot of demand from folks throughout the country coming in, wanting to Back buy to New York. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the land market, uh, has been impacted by policy. We, we had a tax abatement program that made rental housing construction feasible. That is no longer a, around. Uh, so that market is completely shut down. Uh, the condo land market is still robust, but values are down 20 to 30% just in the last year based on the fact that um, that construction loans are so expensive mm-hmm. today. You know, mm-hmm. pricing in the 10s or 11s, depending on what LTC you want. Yep. Um, and then office, which is the big question mark. Office probably still has another another couple of years at least to go uh, to figure out what's uh, what's going to happen there. But you know, what's going to happen with aggregate demand? Are people going to come back to the office? How is that going to affect you know absorption? So a lot of question marks still in the office sector. But it's interesting how different sectors are moving in different directions. Right, there's not one big wave that's pushing everybody the same direction. That's fairly consistent with what we see in our market at a smaller scale. Has anyone in your market found a way to convert office or um, industrial to multifamily housing? Um, I'm not aware of any industrial conversions, but there are are several um, office to resi conversions that are going on. Uh, A couple of bigger buildings downtown are being done. Uh, We just sold a 65,000 foot office building that was vacant on West 55th Street that's being converted to condos. Uh, So that's happening a lot. And I think the, uh, interestingly, the value of office buildings is getting down to the point where uh, the cost of the building and the cost of demolition combined is less than the land value. So I think that some of these buildings are going to be demolished. Wow. Once you see that intersect, you right. know, it's a project that could be done. Yeah. So, you know, interesting market. You look at every deal is different. Everything 
Um, you know, you have to look at highest and best use and figure out what's going on. But it's it's shocking where the price per square foot has gotten to the point where um, in some sectors it's where it was 20, 25 years ago. Mm -hmm. Wow. So what are a couple things that you've taken away from this conference so far that have kind of helped maybe shift your thinking in regards to the commercial real estate realm? Yeah, well, I, you know, I, I love conferences and I think the the best thing you come away with is learning how much you don't know. And I think it was really eye-opening, um, you know, particularly Rod's uh, session on, on AI. And, uh, you know, I, I talk to Rod pretty much every day. So to have him get up there and talk, and he's talking about stuff, and I'm like, wow, I never, <laughs> never knew that. I, you know, we have to talk about different topics, I was I guess. I wondering that as I was listening yesterday. I'm like, how much of this does, has, has Bob also been? Yeah, no, with a lot of it. We talked yeah. about a lot of it, but there were other things that we haven't talked about. So... Um, you know, so I, I think there is a, uh, a whole transformation going on in this industry. And I think that the folks who are able to take advantage of the technology that's available today are going to be the winners and other folks are going to be left behind because, uh, you know, you have to evolve. Right. And um, the, the, the power that technology gives. You know, it's interesting. People, people ask me, well, what was it like when you started and how, how have things changed? You know, when I started in the business in 84, there's no computer on my desk, no fax machine, no cell phone. Um, you know, it was, it was a very, very different world. And so you think that technology has made the, the transaction process so much more efficient and quicker. Uh, you would think that there is more there are more transactions going on today. But actually, if you look at the number of buildings sold decade by decade, it, it's dropped every successive decade since the 80s. Wow. So what, what it's done, I think that it has thinned out the ranks of brokers. I think there probably were many more brokers in the 80s and the, the numbers have dwindled because technology has empowered fewer people to do more. Right. Um, so, like, if you look at the back of my baseball card, there are years where I've sold over 100 properties. There's no way you could possibly do that without technology. Mm -hmm. yeah. Impossible. Mm -hmm. So, I, I think that, uh, interestingly, uh, technology is going to really change the way business is done, uh, how companies are run, what, what a smaller company will be able to do uh, with the embracing technology. So uh, fascinating stuff, but the world is, is changing. I almost feel like I mentioned this uh, yesterday, um, that I feel like I'm kind of starting my career all over again. Mm -hmm. uh, I have the benefit of a 40-year track record behind me, but the fact is I'm really starting from ground zero. And uh, it's a whole new ball game based upon all these, uh, these technologies that right, are available the to us. Artificial intelligence tools are incredible. Mm -hmm. Well, you say you're starting again is are you going to be the kind of broker who never retires oh i i will i talk for a living i don't do manual <laughs> labor so as long as i'm able to talk uh i think i'll keep doing this i uh, i absolutely love it and uh you know my uh my wife is great about uh understanding that real estate is my job and my hobby mm -hmm. uh i love doing it and uh you know hopefully uh i can do it for another 20 or 30 years. Well, good. Well, well, maybe we'll close on a motto. Do you have a motto that you can share or some kind of words of wisdom? No, I think, uh, you know, it's always just do the right thing. Yeah. I think uh, if you do the right thing, treat people well, 
uh, I think it comes around to you. I think have uh, the abundance mindset. You know, we talked about that, that you can, you can look at the world as a zero-sum game, and every, uh, every win for you is a loss for me. Uh, I think that leads to a less happy life mm-hmm. than uh, if you have uh, the perspective of abundance and there's enough to go around for everybody. And I really believe there is enough to go around for everybody. So, um, you know, I think just uh, do the right thing, treat people well, and I think good things will happen for you. That's good. Well, Bob, thank you for coming on our show today. We appreciate it and we look forward to seeing you again. Great to be with you guys. Yeah, Thanks thank for you. having me. <laughs>